Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 20, One Does Not Simply Do a Monarchy. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Wanda, that was so decisive. I loved it. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I'm also... Uh, Real mod vibes. Yeah, I'm the decider uh, today. And I'm also deciding that we absolutely need to keep this one to an hour or less because it's so uncomfortable to be under this sheet right now where I'm recording. <laughs> okay. It's not the least comfortable thing I've ever done, but it's up there. <laughs> All right. Well, then kick us off with a plot summary. Yeah, they go to Rohan. Uh, and we wanted to talk about it. <laughs> uh, welcome back, listeners. It, we're discussing uh, The King of the Golden Hall, a uh, chapter, I don't know what it is, in uh, book three of Lord of the Rings. This, uh, this chapter sees Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli now reunited with Gandalf, going to the capital, if you want to call it that, of Rohan, which is Edoras, to have some words with King Theoden and his main vizier advisor, Grima Wormtongue. In the process, they, uh, they free Theoden from a sort of spell that he's been put under by Wormtongue. And I actually want to start off by just asking you guys, what do you think was actually going on here? Was, is Grima working magic? That wasn't my reading. That was my assumption coming in was that Grima had been working magic because that's really more clearly what seems to be indicated in the movies with his, uh, I think, Navia, you said in your notes, his Benjamin buttoning. Yeah, he Benjamin buttons. <laughs> he Benjamin buttons. Um, but Theoden doesn't seem to Benjamin button in this one. He both seems more sort of with it and together and aware of what's going on when they first show up. And the transformation that seems to happen is much more internal in terms of a shifting of perspective. So I I didn't really see any clear indicators of magic, which actually I, I then had a hard time wrapping my head around how quickly Theoden does change his mind on Gandalf. Thank you for dropping the word vizier because this is, it's so good. <laughs> and I also, love that has word. there ever been a non-evil vizier character? <laughs> like, I feel like if you are a vizier, you are evil. Yeah, especially grand vizier. That's that's even yeah. more evil. Um, yeah. No, I kind of I half agree with Ashani that there was a lot less like magical implications going on, but there definitely was something because he does claim to like have the strength back in his hands suddenly and things like that like he hasn't been able to hold his sword yeah. he so gets taller sort of like they <laughs> see him sort of rise up and become taller but it also like to ashani's point it's not he they don't say like he magic he almost as if by magic transformed and lost his white beard hairs right but it's kind of hard to figure out like why if it's not magic why Gandalf has this, like, important role in bringing him out of this, because we don't... Well, first of all, it's not one moment, right? He, like, locks himself in a room with 
like Gandalf and Theoden lock themselves in a room for a while and then when he comes out he's like transformed again um and so it's not like he like releases him from a spell Shani you're looking at me like you don't remember this yeah because they don't no they don't get locked in we see all of what happens they go out to like the balcony I'm pretty sure and they're standing there well yeah they have like a conversation yeah, but we get all of it. It's not like they go away and we don't see any of it. It's all on screen. Yes, on it is page, on screen, rather. but I feel like the the part that isn't on screen is like whatever Gandalf is doing. Still, a big deal is made out of the fact that Gandalf has his staff. Like we see a whole series of events of them trying to not let him take it. And he's like, no, I got to have the staff, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it seems like it's important in some way. Well, here's yeah. the passage. And I only... I only found this going back on second read. I think I sort of breezed by it in my first read. So after Gandalf says, basically, move aside, Grima Wormtongue, it says, he raised his staff. There was a roll of thunder. The sunlight was blotted out from the eastern windows. The whole hall became suddenly dark as night. The fire faded to sullen embers. Only Gandalf could be seen, standing white and tall before the blackened hearth. In the gloom, they heard the hiss of Wormtongue's voice. Did I not tell you to take his staff? Then all was silent. Wormtongue sprawled on his face. So there's something going on there, right? That's like yeah, mm-hmm. physically visible. Well, and I think what I should clarify is, I think when you ask the question of was there magic involved, um, what I should clarify is that I don't think Grima was using magic or at least that to me was not super apparent right um that grima is using magic now gandalf definitely uses magic to certainly shut him up and or knock him out and also potentially then to revive theoden in some way so i guess i agree navia in that way that there's magic that happens but i don't think it's grima I don't think Grima's influence over Theoden is necessarily magical. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think I agree with that. Um, and something that's a lot less clear here than it is in the movie is like in the movie again, like you said, you see that scene of Saruman like flying backwards, and the implicit thing that you're meant to take from that is that Saruman has been directly controlling Theoden's mind through Grima mm-hmm. somehow. In here, like. One, Grima and the way he's manipulating Theoden seems a lot less clear. And also his relationship to Saruman seems less clear. Um, It's not clear that Saruman has like sent him on this mission to take over Theoden's mind. It it seems like he's operating on his own, but maybe with like the thought that maybe Saruman will reward him for it. it. It's it's very it's left very vague exactly what kind of relationship they have in the past. Right, and we learned that Grima uh it's it's made explicit in the books that Grima has actually been working for Theoden for a long time. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting, right? It's not that he's just this like rando that showed up and somehow took over. And it's also pretty explicit in the books that at one point, Grima was probably working for Theoden out of genuine loyalty, or at least genuine sort of desire to be in that position, and that it was only later on that he was swayed by greed, and Saruman came to him after he had already started working for Theoden and said, 
you know, I will reward you if you can give me information on what's going on and if you can try and influence him in these ways. And also, we can imagine that Saruman was probably saying something like he said to Gandalf, which is that this is a lost cause anyway. The old order as we know it is going down. Mm-hmm. So you can go down with the ship or you can join me. Which is a much more mundane explanation for what's going on than we're given in the movies. But it's also a more realistic one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I also think it gives more credit to what Grima has actually done here. Because it's not Saruman manipulating Theoden's mind with magic. Like It is a man doing like this very intelligent manipulation of a king through rumor mongering and like getting him to distrust the people around him and like tactics that we actually see play out in like in the real world um and it it kind of like makes him a much more intelligent and dangerous character than i feel like he comes off in the movies despite mm-hmm. the fact that his name is grima wormtongue and- okay hold up this is this is a point of contention. So his name is Grima. Wormtongue is just a moniker that like the people have given him because I I know this is like a meme where people are like, why would you trust someone whose name is Wormtongue? But I think we get a scene at some point where like somebody says, um, oh why like they refer to him as the Wormtongue, and. Um, yeah, <laughs> they explicitly acknowledge it as a nickname. Yeah. in the text, <laughs> his, his and a mother nickname did given not to him by him people who don't like him. Yeah, it's just like a it's like a funny name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> although that does bring up a really good point because one of the things that I was noticing as I listened to you two talk and as I read the chapter too, but I don't think I'd fully formulated it until just now. But what I was thinking about was the way in which. The reason why Theoden seems so weak and beaten down is that it really feels like this is what happens when you're in a relationship that is like emotionally abusive or verbally abusive is that here is this person who has isolated you from everybody who used to support you and who basically is telling you, you can't do things. You're not actually competent. No, 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 that's too much Mm -hmm. for you, right? And like taking away agency and taking away support and taking away like things you used to like doing. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. That's too dangerous, Mm -hmm. right? No, 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 you're the king. tells you you should be doing something. Like they make you think, oh, that guy's the bad guy. Yeah, and it really felt like it is a clever tactic because we see parallels in the real world. We know that this kind of manipulation works on people, and it's very much what Grima is doing, and it can absolutely have these physical effects. And I think the really insidious thing about it is that at least the first time Grima talks, nothing he says is objectively untrue from the knowledge that the Rohirrim would have. Yes, yeah. right. There's there's nothing like that's I had a question in my notes which was is Grima Wormtongue peddling any particular theory to Theoden? Right? Is he is he making Theoden see things um is he peddling a conspiracy theory? Or is it more about the way that he is making this is gonna sound dumb, but like more about the way that he's making Theoden feel and the personal effect that he's having on him. And I think from what you're saying, it sounds like it's it's more the latter. Because there's this whole scene where Gandalf gets Theoden to come outside. 
and actually look out on Rohan. And that seems like it's really significant for Theoden. Like that's a moment where he goes, oh, wow, it's raining. I love the rain. It's it's mm-hmm. very beautiful. Yeah. And then he looks out and he's like, this was like a thing that like Navi and I were really into when we would watch the movies as kids. Is that scene? It's so it's so unfortunate because it's like it's one of the really most beautiful. Sad. It's scenes. the flower, right? That yeah. grows on the yeah. Yes. The flower's name is Symbolmina. But Bernard Hill says it like he's not really sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> Why did I used to just like repeatedly watch this scene and say Symbolmina to each other? Ishani, like I, I think the the parallel to an an emotionally abusive relationship is a really good one. And I also what this made me think of was like how people get indoctrinated into cults because Mm -hmm. um like when you objectively look at a lot of like what cults are peddling as their theories you're like that is literally insane what are you doing but the way that they manipulate people and get them to stop trusting the people around them and trust the cult leaders instead and like slowly Mm -hmm. change the way that they see the world and not only do it to one person but to do it to a group of people right and that's what i thought it was interesting here is that you see the phenomenon of theoden has been manipulated by this man but everyone around him is also kind of participating in or afraid to say anything about this delusion and so you get these characters that are either like they're sold and they're like whatever the king says i must do that's been my whole life um and so if if grima wormtongue is the way we're going then that's the way we're going and then you see people like aon and hama who have their like very very small moments of rebellion but ultimately are kind of participating in this in order to stay close to the king that they love Mm -hmm. i'm just sort of curious why the movies decided to um, make it more like Grima was weakening the king's mind. I think Gandalf actually says it, that he's weakening slash poisoning the king's mind so that Saruman can get in and literally control him. Whereas in the books, it's just like Grima's a very persuasive person. And he persuades Theoden to stay inside, which all things considered is the easiest thing to do at a time like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, like, I thought about that, too. I was like, why did they make this choice? Um, and what I came away with was, I think the movies, it, it, particularly the second movie in which we see this whole dynamic, has this kind of struggle with having to insert another villain into a story in which we already have established what the main villain is. And so Mm -hmm. now they need to make you care somehow about Saruman and him as the big bad of this story. Um, And they don't have a lot of time to do that. They don't have like enough time to set that up because he basically wasn't in the previous movie. And so in order to like up the stakes really quickly, they give him this role of of actually like having a physical spell on Theoden and, and you are immediately invested in Rohan because you're like, yeah, this is like a, a place that I can recognize and it feels like a society that I know about and I relate to that and then you see this like insidious thing happening and you're like who's doing that get that person out of here and it's Saruman um no you're totally right it's like it's like rather than rather than build in kind of a whole new layer of complexity they're basically like yeah Wormtongue he's basically just Saruman you can think of him like that yeah and it is something that I think is a lot easier to do 
the way they changed it is something that's a lot easier to do with visual storytelling Mm -hmm. because they don't really change much in the way of adding dialogue about how Saruman has now like is using Wormtongue to cast a spell on Theoden. It's all done through visual storytelling, which I think is both a more efficient use of their time and prevents it from really slowing down the pace to be like, let's give all of this exposition about how Grima has been manipulating Theoden into believing these things. Mm-hmm. I also think it's a it's an interesting like in the book you I feel like you get a lot more information about the types of weakness that Theoden has as opposed to just like here is this like feeble man and he can't even lift mm-hmm. himself off his throne and in the book it's more like he he's fine really physically right maybe a little bit weakened but and and also he knows what's happening around him he's not like completely unaware of of the situation and it's Mm -hmm. almost more evil in that way where like you took a person who could have been a very good leader and and is in the future a very good leader to his people and turn him into like this person who basically is not ruling over his kingdom just through sheer force of manipulation and you see that also contrasted with the other leaders that we've seen in the story where you start to wonder oh does Aragorn have this kind of weakness, right? Like, if he was put in a situation where Grima Wormtongue was in his ear all the time, like, would he become this kind of king? Or is he somehow exempt from that? Yeah. I wonder how much Tolkien was drawing on experiences of... I know we come back to this every so often, right? But experiences of wartime in that what Theoden appears to be experiencing in a lot of ways is very much in line with, like, depression symptoms. You don't like the things you used to like. You don't care about the things you used to care about. You're just flat and gray and washed out. And Mm -hmm. that really feels like what Theoden is going through. And in the same, like, vibe of, oh, yeah, well, you've been through this emotional manipulation. You've gone through this sort of interpersonal trauma of losing your son and like having all of these things stripped away from you and feeling so bad about yourself and where things are going for you and your people that you've basically just given up Mm -hmm. right it's like it's like i know what's happening but i just am supremely apathetic towards it maybe this is a different kind of depression than what you've had but for me when there when there is when i have been depressed there has always been one source of uh, one source of happiness or pleasure that remains in my life, like whether it's like a substance or a person or an idea or something like that. And it's for me, being depressed is a process of like cultivating greater and greater dependence on that thing and and feeling like like understanding like how isolated I'm becoming from everything else that could make me happy, but just not feeling able to like cut like break free from like a dependence and so like to the degree that i think theoden is dependent on grima Wormtongue, gandalf is doing the one thing that he can do he's like i can't i can't make the situation around you any less scary right but i can i can make it clear to you that this person that you're depending on is not actually very powerful i'm more powerful than him Mm mm-hmm 
yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? I guess like no, it does. Guess, it does. Yeah. I I think I mean obviously depression manifests in many many different forms and people experience it differently. But yeah, I think I see what you're saying. Um, and I think yeah, that idea of like even if it's not showing you that the thing you're depending on has a weakness, sometimes I feel like it's even showing you that depression has a weakness and it will not not always have a hold over you you know yeah that's a better way to say it that like that you haven't um that basically just giving you a way out right poking a little hole in in the solid wall of depression that has built up around you right well we got so dark Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I also want to say, like, I, I don't really hate on the movies completely in this way. Like, I think that the scene where Gandalf casts out Saruman from Theoden's body is, like, maybe my favorite scene in the Two Towers, if not, like, in the whole series. I think it's really yeah. good. And I also think that, like, to the degree that Theoden is experiencing that sort of out-of-body out of body feeling that comes with depression, right. Of like being one or two degrees removed from having feelings at all. Their visual depiction of that as it's not just that he's old, he's so gross. He's like got those like fingernails and like he, (laughs) like his eyes are all messed up and he's like kind of all yellow and jaundiced. And it's, it really just looks like nobody is available in that body. And yeah. I think that's like, it's a nice visual depiction of that for all that it is sort of like shaving off a lot of the complexity that's here in the book. Well, I think there's something also really like cathartic about seeing the the moment of Saruman flying backwards because it's like you feel that like release of like something has let go of its hold on you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, the, mm-hmm. the effects on that scene, man, like the Benjamin Button scene, are are still so good. They they hold up so well. Every time I watch that scene, I'm like, how do they do it? <laughs> and they make him like it, like like in comparison to like how he begins the scene, Theoden, like after he loses all that stuff, he looks so hot. And <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Okay, actually though, speaking of this confrontation. There is one way in which I like the confrontation better in the movies than in the books. I do think it's good in the movies. I agree with you. I think the CG... Wow. I think the CGI holds up. I don't um, even know if it is CGI. It might just be like a practical practical uh, effect of like the makeup changing and them... It's like, like a flip taking book. A bunch of still- <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> They just freeze frame and then, like, fade transition it. Um, I, I think it actually might be, like, an animation style. Like, they have the bu- a bunch of frames and put them together. So, like, somebody yeah. was, like, going, like, how they how they filmed it. I feel like if it was like this, they would have, like, shown us in the extras. But, like, someone's going in and, like, clipping one beard hair off of it and then they take <laughs> another still. I bet you, if anything, they would have done it the other way around because it's much easier to apply makeup and prosthetics than yeah. it is to reverse it. So they were probably sitting there going, all right, we're going to add one hair. <laughs> In the scene, he does not lose hairs one by one. That's not what no. happens. Watch it again. You're they wrong. They just ripple across his face. Anyways, my point was... A thousand years ago, when I had a point, um, was that the one thing I didn't really love about, 
okay, there were a couple of things I didn't love about this whole chunk of scenes in the book. But one thing that kind of felt weird to me is that Gandalf commits like a very major diplomatic no-no in attacking Grima inside Theoden's court. Like we, and I know we're going to talk about Aragorn and his little snit outside the hall doors, but that is nothing compared to attacking a member of court in a foreign palace. Like, yikes. Well, you sound like you disapprove. I, you know, honestly, I, I think the outcome is good, but nonsensical. Wait, are you comparing the and saying the book did this badly when the movie has like a full on fight scene where Legolas is like punching people from the court? Yes, <laughs> because you know why? That's a more realistic reaction. The fact that they're all just like cool with it that Gandalf has attacked someone in the Hall of Theoden, Lord of the Mark, and like. He doesn't get arrested on site. They don't even try. Mm, I'm gonna I'm gonna side with Navia on this one. I think that it makes a lot more sense that in a kingdom where everybody is sort of freaked out by how captive Theoden has become to his vizier, um, that they they would be sort of maybe uncomfortable but accepting. But I also think there's like a a part where realistically like you would see Gandalf do this magic and be like terrified to do anything because he's the only one in this place that has magical abilities like they don't even rush to protect Theoden like I mean sure okay maybe you're gonna sit there and go oh okay he's we're not gonna try and confront him directly because he's too powerful but if they really genuinely if there is even a sliver of doubt because of the things that Grima has been saying, shouldn't there be a sliver of doubt that maybe Gandalf's intentions are not good? You're telling me nobody in that room didn't maybe believe even a little bit that Gandalf was there to do something evil the way that they have been told he is he is. They don't give us a lot of detail here and I think there's a lot of things that feel sort of discombobulated about this chapter, almost yeah. intentionally obfuscating. I do want to raise one thing that like, I think makes it a little bit, a l- explains it a little bit, right? And it's the very thing that we think was so audacious in this chapter, which is that when Aragorn and Gandalf and Gimli and Legolas get to the Golden Hall, they're outside and they're told to discard all of their weapons, right? Uh, you can't bring that bomb into the golden hall yeah rohan tsa basically strips them of their weapons (laughs) yeah i actually love how this is in the movies because like remember how like legolas like takes out like thing after thing and it's clear that he's just like armed from like the shoes up to his ears it's so cool (laughs) um i definitely had a big orlando bloom moment when that happened but aragorn says something aragorn makes a big deal about it like he fusses so hard he says, so he basically says, yes, I understand that the king has forbidden us to bring weapons in, but I have like a, I have a will that supersedes that of Theoden because I am the heir to Elendil. Aragorn says this even though he is definitely not king of anything, 
And <laughs> until basically a year ago, he had never expressed a wish to be king of anything. And here he is outside the Golden Hall and he's going, uh, I don't, I think that like my, like my desires are more important. Like I literally am king over you. I'm king of men. Um, and then he says some shit about how if anybody touches Narsil, who's not him, they'll die, which I think is a lie. That's how I, I read it. Okay, so it, yeah, it depends on how you read this, right? There's a few things that could be going on. He could just be grandstanding because he has done so multiple times so far. Or if what he says is true, I mean, it kind of makes sense that you don't want to hand over a sword that literally kills people if they touch it. Um, right. It, like, that, that sort of checks out, um, although... It's never been mentioned before, and it seems like kind of a key point. I totally read it as a threat. I didn't read it as, oh, no, like some magic on the sword will kill you. I meant I read it as, if you touch my sword, I will kill you. Oh, I read it as like a, if anybody who's not the heir to this, to be holding this sword draws it, then they will die. Let's see if the, uh, let's see if, if Tolkien's text can finish this argument (laughs) okay while you look at that though i think there is like a third theory which is that he is grandstanding to distract from gandalf's staff yes that's what i that's what i came away thinking is that aragorn was doing major grandstanding in this scene um partly to distract to basically make such a big deal out of his sword that it would be awkward for them to later refuse gandalf's staff Mm -hmm. and then also at the same time making everybody aware of just how serious and how badass the four of them are because yeah. it's like it's one thing if like some like some nobody just like walks in and tries to like KO your king's vizier and it's quite another <laughs> thing if somebody who has just proclaimed himself like lord of men who has a sword that will kill anyone that touches it who isn't him and then somebody else who's like Gandalf the White and he put out the fire everywhere <laughs> inside the hall. <laughs> like when those people like walk in, it's sort of like, I, I, I think the battle is lost as soon as you let them inside. Yeah. Although I think given that Grima specifically gave orders to take Gandalf's staff and it's mentioned like a few times, I think that like Aragorn's grandstanding had no effect in this case and that Hama actually was like, I know what this is about. I'm going to deliberately let you in with your staff because I'm scared for my king. <laughs> yeah, I I would read that more at the interpretation, if anything, of Hama making that decision mm-hmm. and giving him the credit. Because frankly, I don't think Aragorn has earned that level of my faith in his political acumen. On the other hand, I would die for Hama based on this chapter. <laughs> yes, correct. I'm like, Hama, excellent. Aragorn, Uh, You know what? If he had shown up until this point more consistent willingness to use his title only at times when it is meaningful, right? And we do see him do that. Like, he does that with Aemir a couple chapters previous Mm -hmm. where he uses his title potentially to gain influence or to sort of make a more convincing argument. But up until that point... Every time he's declared himself king of Gondor, it's basically been like in the middle of the wilderness just because he feels like it. (laughs) So I don't really like I don't have that sense of, oh, yeah, he's doing this definitely for a reason. I'm like, sometimes he just feels like saying it. He's like a two year old who's got to tell you when he's got to go potty. Yeah. No, I think that like I think that's a really good argument that 
unfortunately, contrary to how I want to read Aragorn's character, which is as a like ruthless political manipulator, he might just be a ninny. But I like... I mean, I, I like the way that he is portrayed here as a contrast to the movies, because in the movies, he is portrayed uh, as the most likable, like I would follow this guy into battle kind of guy ever, right? And it's not it's not because of anything that seems to make him like a good politician. It's just because we like him. And so I think like in the movies, they they try and get us to buy into the whole Aragorn thing by saying like, wouldn't you like to have Aragorn as your king? But it would be, it would be nice if in the books, like the, the case for Aragorn is just that this guy, this guy fucking gets it done. (laughs) Yeah. Or even like in a more simplistic sense, like this guy, because of his lineage has to be the guy that gets it done. Right. Yeah. Um, I like that read, actually, because I've been struggling with Aragorn's character in the book so far, where I'm just like, I don't really like this guy as much as I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Right. When he's not likable, it becomes like the, the question of the question of destiny becomes a little bit more fraught. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like the hand of destiny has willed that this person take up this mantle. Unfortunately, they're very psychologically unfit. <laughs> I mean, that is the whole, like, divine right of kings problem, right? Is like, sometimes you get a great king and you're like, yes, this guy should be the monarch. And then what if his son or his grandson is uh, going to go hide out in the woods for 87 years and reject all responsibility for several decades? Right. You win some, you lose some. Mm-hmm. But then you're stuck with him for potentially centuries in this case because... I don't know how long Aragorn actually lives, but certainly at least to like 150, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he ends up being quite old. So I think exactly 150, actually. Oh, okay. Well, hey, nailed it. Um, I think like also this kind of, because Tolkien, as we've mentioned a few times, was trying to write like a British mythology and a, and a British history. It mm-hmm. there He pulls a little bit from like things that have happened in the British monarchy where like some people have accidentally ended up being king for a really long time and they sucked at it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Or, you know, the idea of like, you don't really know what you're going to get in a in a ruler. And also they will have absolute power. So uh, good luck with that society. <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah, you really do win some and lose some. And it feels like he can't, even though he's writing a mythology. And I think that from what little I know about Arthurian legend, Arthurian legend doesn't seem to be super like politically relevant to how the monarchy works or has worked for like the last several hundred years. Mm-hmm. Like it's not realistic in this way, but Tolkien seems like he can't really help being realistic, you know? It is. Yeah. It is interesting that he's trying to write a mythology and yet we get these like very, very relatable depictions of some of the kingdoms that we see. We Let's go to quick, uh, quick fire around you guys. Quirk, I think we fire. I think we've leached. Okay. Yeah, we've leached the most we can out of this topic. All right, Ashani, you want to take us Okay. Out? Yeah. So here's my quick fire, which is I don't know that I had really thought about it until this chapter, but some for some reason in this chapter, I sat there and went, I cannot imagine reading this book for the first time with 
no other exposure to Lord of the Rings, right? No movies, no sort of pop culture knowledge of what's going to happen. And picking up the two towers after Fellowship, right, which ends with Frodo and Sam crossing the river. That's the last bit of Fellowship. And then just not getting anything of Frodo and Sam for an entire book. And how incredibly stressful that must have been. Like, I know that what's coming is actually probably going to be very tedious. But at the same time, I'm sitting there and going like, man, that is a bold move. And I kind of have to respect it. Yeah. Except for the one scene in which Legolas can apparently see all the way to Mordor (laughs) and sees like (laughs) a single light on a tower or something. But it is kind of bonkers if you think about these books coming out sequentially that you would just start reading this and be like, hold on, did they die or something? (laughs) Yeah. You're supposed to kind of get the sense of like how hidden they are. Mm Mm-hmm. And it really works. So uh, in the last episode, we had a a bit of a conflict between Ishani and I where Ishani apparently hates Gandalf and I said he was one of my favorite characters. But I would like to uh, not withdraw that statement. I still like Gandalf, but add on to that statement that we have now been introduced to my actual favorite character of this series, and that's Eowyn, and I love her, and she's the best, and I would follow her anywhere. Uh, (laughs) And I know she doesn't really have much to do in this chapter, but I'd just like to say that at the end, they were like, hmm, who should we leave in charge of our kingdom? And they were like, Eowyn. And that's how I love that. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, they go they go to Helm's Deep at the end of this chapter, right? They pack mm-hmm. up pretty much immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Grima makes a case for being in charge while Theoden is gone. Like he just like did not listen to what happened for the last two hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought it was really sweet though, that it's like, no, you know, there is actually somebody who the people trust and it's Eowyn. Yeah. Related to it, just because like it kind of follows naturally, like the way that they, the way that they kick out Grima Wormtongue after he makes a bid to rule everything <laughs> while everyone else is off at Helm's Deep, the way that they show him the door is unbelievably stupid. They basically just say, "Give him a horse and go," and then he goes right back to Saruman, who they already know basically owns this guy, and then he gives Saruman all of their secrets. And he already knows where they're going at this point. And in the movies, it's attributable to Aragorn saying, let him go, enough blood has been spilled on his account. Which is also stupid. (laughs) Which is also stupid, right? It's like, and it it plays to like, it plays to the way that they try to make Aragorn like this really noble guy and noble to a fault, right? But in the books, it just makes no sense at all. They had Aomer in prison like five seconds ago, and now they're letting Wormtongue go? (laughs) Yeah. It's bonkers, especially with the knowledge of what Saruman and Wormtongue will eventually go on to do in the Shire. Like, you're not only sacrificing your secrets of Rohan, like, this guy sucks, and you're leaving him alive to, like, go back to his his whatever wizard person and be evil with him instead, which is just... Okay, fine, you don't want to kill him? Yeah, at least stick him in the dungeon. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I honestly think the only reason they didn't stick him into the dungeon is the fact that everybody is abandoning the city, right? Because all of the civilians are going up to hide in the mountains and all of the fighting fit men and 
boys are going off to war. So there would he would then just starve to death horribly in an empty dungeon. Even better. Um, <laughs> yeah, which I'm like, okay, you know, then you might as well just kill him humanely if that's going to be the end. But yeah, it doesn't seem like a good solution. Well, first they try to convince him to go to war with them, right? They're like, yeah, no, come fight with us. And it's almost right. like they're doing this joke where they like know that he's so that he's a coward and he's never going to go with them. Where they're just like, "Yeah, you want to come? You want to go with us?" And yeah. <laughs> he's like, no, "I'll stay here and rule instead." Um, and it, yeah, it just played out like this really weird scene in which nobody thought through even the next five minutes of what was going to happen when they let him go. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like they're trying to give him the chance to redeem himself by letting offering him a spot in the army. But also, why would you want a known traitor in your army with access to things like your supplies and your equipment? Well, that seems incredibly dangerous. On balance, think... it seems like they just trust him a little bit too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At, at the very least, like, use him smartly, right? Like use him to draw Saruman out or like get him to tell you some secrets of what Saruman is doing or like something let him redeem himself as claim even a better thing would have been if he had claimed to be like I'll go spy on Saruman for you and come back and then I would have believed the decision to let him go that one makes sense this is just like do you not think that this guy is dangerous when he's just manipulated your king for like x amount of years yeah you've just learned that he can be bought buy him back Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Wanda. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to.